What a great message to think about as we're getting into our passage for this morning, God's faithfulness. He has been faithful to his church for centuries, for millennia, 2,000 years. I mean, the, the growth of Christianity in the early centuries, in, in the first part of the church after the resurrection, is, is something that is one of the most surprising realities in the history of the human race. I mean, I, I've been reading quite a bit, um, for some reason, just am totally taken right now with the early church and how the church developed. And so I've been reading on this, and it's shocking that this thing that is Christianity that now is embraced by hundreds of millions and billions of people on this globe came into existence. I mean, if, if you stop and think about it, the Roman Empire was controlling most of the known world when Jesus came into the world. And there were all sorts of religious expressions and, and ways to be religious. And all of them, almost without exception, involved worshiping multiple gods. And then you've got in the corner of the Roman Empire, in this country that would have been perceived as sort of backwards and weird, Israel, kind of off to the side, they kind of did their own thing, not influential at all. You've got rising up out of this country this belief that a man was born who was actually God and was killed by the Romans on the cross, which is the worst possible way to die, the most shameful way to die, and that he rose from the dead. And this belief, this news spreads throughout the entire empire and just completely takes over the Roman Empire. I mean, it's a shocking progression that happens very, very quickly. I've been reading about this, and there's, there's, you can't know for sure, but there are some estimates that in the book of Acts, you know, you've got a few thousand believers after the day of Pentecost, and by the time you get to 300 AD, you've got, so 250-ish or so years after Pentecost, You've got 10% of the Roman population being Christian. And then in 50 more years, some people estimate that 50, over 50% of the Roman Empire is now Christians, are now Christians. And it's the official religion of the entire empire. I mean, this is a shocking development that has happened. And as this happened, and as the church spread and the gospel spread, if you think about it, it's really quite profound. The method of how this spread is really quite, quite profound and quite simple. It actually makes a ton of sense if you stop and think about it. Following the Great Commission, Jesus speaks to his 12 disciples. Those original 12 disciples took this good news, this gospel message that they had received, that Jesus had come into the world as the God-man, had died on the cross, been buried, risen from the dead and ascended to the Father, and that through this, God was breaking his kingdom into the world and going to set things right. And they took this gospel message and they began proclaiming it and telling people this news. And as people heard this news, they started to believe it. Oh, this really did happen. This guy was really God, and he did rise from the dead. And so they heard this message, and they repented of their sins, and they believed this message. And when they believed, they were baptized. They were initiated into this, uh, this group of believers, and they became disciples of Jesus Christ as well. And these disciples 
These disciple groups were happening all over the Roman Empire in all these different cities, and they organized themselves. After a group of people heard the good news and believed it and were baptized, they organized themselves together into churches or assemblies in these different cities. And they began meeting on the first day of the week. And they would meet together, just like it said in Acts 2, to sing together and worship to the Lord, to fellowship with one another, to take the Lord's Supper together, to practice baptism for new followers of Christ. They would be instructed in the scriptures and they would carry one another's burdens and love on one another and encourage one another. And so they began doing this every week. And it spread and impacted this entire area of the world. Now, as these little assemblies were popping up all in all of these different cities all over the empire, it became necessary for them to be led by certain men. And so the New Testament is quite clear that as the church developed, that they were to set aside elders or shepherds in each of these local bodies, and those men were to be qualified to do this work of shepherding and leading, and they were to take the responsibility for it. And this is exactly what Paul tells Titus in Titus 1. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so then after this, Paul goes on to give a list of qualifications that a man must meet in order to serve as an elder. And once he does, and he's willing to serve, he helps to give oversight to God's church. For a group of people in the New Testament era, and now as well, to, to qualify as a biblical church, to be what the Bible describes as a church, to fulfill that pattern, this is a requirement. I mean, you can meet together with your group in a small group at your house, but it is not a church unless there are several things happening. You have to practice the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper together. You have to have qualified biblical leadership, which means elders who have been set aside to teach and to lead. And if you don't have at least those two things and several others, you are not a church. But that has been the pattern for 2,000 years. And I hope you can see how this has happened. It began in the early church, and it's really quite simple. People get saved. They organize together. Elders provide leadership. The Great Commission continues to multiply and to go forth. And you are sitting here today, and I am standing here today, as a result of that pattern happening. It's the same exact thing that has been going on for 2,000 years. The same thing. And the Lord has been faithful to his church, and we want to be faithful to follow the pattern that is given to us in Scripture. We're not making this up. We're going by the very clear instructions that God has given to us in the New Testament. And that's why we have set aside this morning to talk about this and to officially ordain and install Zach Johnson as an elder here because of this biblical expectation and this biblical command that you see in the New Testament. I talked earlier about Zach and how he has demonstrated the character and the competency, and he's a fit here to serve as an elder. And so we're going to pray over him um, after the sermon and officially commission him to serve here. But before we do that, I want to give you some of the basics of what this looks like to serve and to function as an elder. Now, of course, I'm talking to Zach this morning, but I'm also talking to all of us. I want you to understand 
what looking, what, what serving as an elder looks like within the church and what is to be expected of an elder and how they're supposed to function. And so to do that, I want to encourage us from one of the original apostles, one of the guys who received this commission from the Lord and who was instrumental in starting this whole thing out that has led us to you sitting here on West Road in 2021 and having the same exact installation of an elder happen today as happened 2,000 years ago, and it's the Apostle Peter. So turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, we're going to start in chapter 2, but we'll end up in chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, I have to be honest, as you're, as you're turning to, to 1 Peter, this is, I probably say this about every book that I teach in, but this is one of my favorite New Testament books. I love this book. I've taught through it before. And the reason that I love this book is because of the metaphor that Peter uses to describe the church. And you can see this metaphor, sort of a controlling metaphor for the entire, uh, the entire book, all the instructions that he gives in the book. You can see it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Look there with me. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, the metaphor that he uses here is of an exile. He's speaking to people who he is describing as sojourners and exiles. What that means is they're not in their home country. They're citizens of another country, and they are existing in a foreign culture. And so they have to live out their life. They have to live out their faith, the, the culture of their homeland in this foreign country. And so that dictates and changes everything about how they, how they work and, and how they live in their family and, and how they function as a church. And because of this metaphor, because they're exiles in this foreign country, the Roman Empire, wherever they lived in the Roman Empire, because of that, they are on the fringes of society. I mean, to be a Christian, there weren't very many of them at this point, but to be a Christian was to be weird, was to be very different from anyone else in your city. The religions that were very prevalent in the Roman Empire, the worship of all of these different gods, required so much of you socially and civically. And so to be a Christian, you had to withdraw from a lot of relationships and a lot of festivals and different things that you would participate in as a pagan, you had to withdraw from that. And so you were seen as odd and sort of on the outside of what a normal Roman citizen would look like. And because of that, they often suffered for their faith. They were persecuted. I mean, you see this in, in 1 Peter. Flip over to chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, look at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now look down at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I mean, these are people who are suffering. And Peter says, look, 
You, you need to expect it. It's going to happen. And when it happens, I want you to endure and entrust your soul to the faithful creator who is going to help you and continue to do good in the midst of your suffering. Continue to live out your faith. And it's in this situation, people who are suffering like this, being persecuted like this, that Peter now turns in chapter 5 and stresses the importance of godly leadership in the church. And this is not accidental. A suffering, persecuted church needs godly, qualified shepherds. And that's what he turns to in chapter 5. Look down at chapter 5 and verse 1. So, you can see the connection there, right? Therefore, so, because of the suffering you're enduring, I exhort the elders among you. So this is a an exhortation to the leadership, to the elders who are serving in these various churches. And look how Peter identifies himself here as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He's speaking directly to the elders and he's identifying himself with them as fellow elders. He's not above them He had served as an elder probably in the church in Jerusalem, maybe was still serving there. And so he's saying, I'm with you guys. I am serving as a fellow elder. I know what it's like to suffer for Christ. I also know the glory that is coming. And so in between, in this time right now, here's how I want you as elders to fulfill your role and your office. All of the talk about suffering shapes how they are to function as elders. And that's what we're going to find in verses 2 through 4. And this is the heart of what we're doing today in this text. Here's how I'm going to summarize this for you. Little sentence here. 1 Peter 5, 1 to 4, shepherd God's flock using God's methods in light of God's return. So this would be Peter's exhortation to Zach to the other elders who serve here at WBC, and to you as a church body to know how the leadership is supposed to function here and what they're supposed to be doing. So as we look at this statement, I'm going to break this apart into three pieces or three parts. And I want to show you the first part is God's charge to the elders to shepherd God's flock. That's the command. And then I want to show you the character or the disposition with which they need to fulfill their role. They use God's methods, not worldly methods. And then I want to show you at the end the compensation that a faithful elder will receive when the Lord returns. All right. So the charge, the character, and the compensation, and all of that is going to break down this this little sentence that I've given. But let's look first at the charge that Peter gives to these elders and then to every elder who has served any church, no matter where in the world you're located, ever since then. Shepherd God's flock. Look at the beginning of verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. I mean, he couldn't be more clear with the command to shepherd. This is for every elder, paid or not paid, Whether you receive your livelihood from this or not, this is the task, this is the charge. Now, obviously, he's using a metaphor of a shepherd and his sheep. 
He says to shepherd them, and he also says that they're, the church is a flock, the flock of God. Now, I don't think Peter is just sort of sitting on the hillside writing this and sees some sheep and a shepherd wander by, and he's like, oh, that's a good, that's a good metaphor for this thing that we're doing. I, this language comes from a number of places. The Old Testament is filled with language of a shepherd and his sheep, particularly talking about the Lord and the nation of Israel. You've all heard Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And so there's an understanding of what this sort of relationship looks like. There's other places in the Old Testament where shepherd and sheep and flock language is used, but ultimately at the end of the day, I don't think Peter is getting this language from the Old Testament. I think he's getting this language and this command from his personal interaction with the Lord Jesus after the resurrection. You remember this story? Jesus had risen from the dead. The disciples go out into the Sea of Galilee, several of them, and they're fishing. They fish all night, and it's not going particularly well. And when, it gets, when the sunrise happens, they're out there in their boat, and there's a guy on the shore, and he yells out, put your net on the other side, and they do. And all these fish, a huge amount of fish come into the net, and they pull him into the boat. They recognize him as the Lord. Peter jumps in the water, swims back to the shore, and when they get there, Jesus has breakfast waiting for them. He's cooking some fish. And as they're sitting there, Jesus then begins to personally engage Peter on his love for the Lord. And this is found in John 21. I'll read it to you. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And notice Christ's response. If you love me, he said to him, yeah, he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, no doubt, picking up the three denials that Peter had done the night of the crucifixion and asking him three times to sort of reset everything if he loves him and to affirm his love for him. And the response each and every time is to affirm the love that Peter has for the Lord by shepherding the flock. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And so I think Peter here in 1 Peter 5 is thinking back onto this experience that he has had with the Lord. And Jesus here charges Peter to tend to, to give oversight to, to protect, to feed his flock. And what's beautiful about this is Peter received this charge directly from the Lord, and now here he is passing this on to every elder who will function in every church down through the ages. But Peter is not sitting above them. I mean, remember what he said in verse 1. He's a fellow elder. Peter is essentially saying, look, you have received this charge from the Lord just like I have. We're together in this. And so our Lord's command to us is to shepherd the flock. Now, what does it mean to shepherd? Peter explains it to us. Look at verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you 
And here's his explanation, exercising oversight. To exercise oversight over the flock is to take the personal responsibility for someone else. It's to be responsible for that other person in some specific areas. If you think about a shepherd and his sheep, the shepherd feels the weight of responsibility for those sheep. He gives attention to them. He is concerned about them. And he he gives attention to them and exercises oversight in several different ways, several different actions. He leads them. He guides them. He sets the direction for them to go. He feeds them. He makes sure that they get what they need to eat and that they're provided for. He protects them from predators, from falling from injuring themselves, and then he cares for them. When they're in distress, when they fall, he cares for them and meets their specific needs, leading, feeding, protecting, and caring. Those are the four functions of an elder. That's what we do. We know that. We talk about that. Those are the four things that we are supposed to do. That's what a shepherd does for the sheep. That's what we do. But of course, when you you read this passage and this verse, something is very clear about this flock that Peter is telling them to provide oversight for. Look again at verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God. Now, he, he definitely says the flock of God that's among you. And I think what he's saying by that is, look, you can't shepherd the universal church. You can't shepherd every person who claims to be a believer, even in your city. And so what has to happen is local churches have to form, which is what happens in the New Testament at Philippi and Ephesus and Corinth and everywhere else. They they form these local churches, and then elders are set aside to shepherd those particular local churches, the people who are among them. This is one of the reasons that we value membership so much. It's your way of saying, I want to be cared for. I want to be protected. If I stray, I want you to come after me. I want you to pursue me and love me. And I want to commit myself to this body to serve and to see the gospel go forward. I want to be among you. And so I think that's what he's getting at. But more specifically here, Peter is saying, you are not shepherding your own flock. It is not that you gather together this group of people and you're the center of attention. They are God's flock. Elders are always shepherding and providing oversight for someone else's sheep. They're always functioning on behalf of the Lord. You can see this back in John 21 in this passage. What does Jesus say to Peter? My sheep, my sheep. Christ died for his sheep And he puts elders in place to protect and lead and guide them. But it's his flock, not their flock. Elders are accountable to the Lord. They are responsible to him. And that's one of the reasons that elders use God's methods, not their own. They go by the scriptures and not what they decide is best. And that's our second part of this. They shepherd God's flock using God's methods. This is the character that is required of a shepherd. In verses 2 and 3, I'm going to read these two in a second, but you can see three prohibitions 
ways that they are not to function in this office, and then paired with each one of those is a positive exhortation. So look at the last half of verse 2, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. These are attitudes and dispositions that guide the elders and every elder in how they exercise oversight. First of all, let's look at them individually. The first one, not under compulsion. No one is to serve as an elder when they feel forced to. No one is requiring anyone to serve as an elder. The reality is, you don't have to serve in this capacity. It is not more spiritual to be an elder. You are not higher up on the ladder of spirituality because you're an elder. God does not love you more because you're an elder. I mean, it is a a position and a way of serving to aspire to and to desire, but it does not give you more spiritual notches in your belt. Elders are not more important than anyone else in the church. Instead, as Peter says here, they are to serve willingly, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And God would have you serve in this way because how did the Lord Jesus Christ serve us? Not under compulsion. It's an act of grace. It's willing service of us that he came to this earth. He accepted a path that would end in his death because of his love and his care and concern. And that's the same mentality that elders bring into this role. Voluntarily, willingly, as God would have you to serve. Secondly, the end of verse 2, he says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. I think right off the bat, you probably recognize this, and I do too, as shameful gain being serving for material wealth. And that's true. And there is a way of using the office of elder to try to gain more wealth for yourself, to make connections and to to grow your business to have influence on people and have a little bit of authority that can can help you put a few extra bucks in your pocket. And there is a way of thinking about eldering that leads to that. And so the center of that is not even necessarily the wealth part of it, but that is an indication that you are using this office for yourself. You want what you want out of it, and it is all about you. It is possible to use the office of elder for your own personal enrichment, both financially and whatever emotional help you can get out of this office. Feel needed, feel wanted, whatever it may be. Rather than desiring the office of elder for personal advancement, elders, shepherds are to serve for the good of others. It is focused on other people. The elder's highest goal and greatest priority is for Christ's church to be built up, for Jesus to be honored and glorified. And so you can see here, it says not for shameful gain at the end of verse 2, but eagerly to serve the Lord and his church with energy and enthusiasm. 
to be all about seeing the gospel go forward, to be excited about what the Lord is doing and hopeful that God will save people and bring them into the church, have them baptized, see them discipled, and then see them go out to share the gospel with more people. I mean, that gets an elder motivated to serve and to shepherd the flock of God. The last method here or character description that he gives is in verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Elders are never to shepherd or to serve using worldly leadership methods to reflect a worldly leadership style. When you and I look out into the culture, oftentimes when we hear about leadership, we're very used to seeing a leader who dominates those who work or serve under him or her. This type of leader overpowers. They control. They're domineering. They bark out orders. They lead by force of personality, by threats. Jesus specifically tells his disciples that it is not going to work that way in my kingdom. It is not the culture of Christ's kingdom, certainly not in his church. Remember this passage in Mark chapter 10? We talked about this at the men's leadership breakfast because this is the heart of what leadership looks like. Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, and here's the word, domineer them, lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." to serve and be focused on the good of others. Now, this is not saying that the leader does everything. They do all the tasks because they're trying to serve others. What this is saying is you are so focused on the good of others that you are serving them by helping them be the best they can be, by helping them to grow spiritually, by helping them to take the next spiritual steps that they need, to help them connect to the body of Christ to grow in their passion for the Lord. That's what an elder does. That's the shepherding that an elder provides. Now, this is is a struggle for leaders, any leader, I think, to, to not give yourself to domineering oversight of others, to not bark out orders. It's a challenge to direct people, to lead people where they need to go with a servant's heart for their good. And it's a challenge to do this even in the body of Christ without pride. That's one of the reasons that the qualifications for an elder say, as Dick read this morning, not a novice, lest he be lifted up in pride. One author put it like this, and I I thought this was really well stated. Pride ever lurks just at the heels of power. Even a little authority is prone to turn the seemly walk into a most offensive strut. You've met people like this. You give them a tiny bit of authority, a tiny bit of responsibility to give direction. Man, they take that authority and responsibility and they hold it tight and they wield it like a sword. Not going to let anybody else get involved. But that's not what is called, the, the lifestyle that is called for an elder. 
In recent years, you, you and I have seen many high-profile Christians fall into this, Christian leaders. They have fallen into this sin of thinking, this is all about me. I am so important to God's ministry that I will lord it over people and I will act how I want to and I will domineer them. and They will serve me in doing what I think God wants me to do. You've seen this, guys like Mark Driscoll, James McDonald, most recently Ravi Zacharias. The power and the position, the leadership begins to shape them and to form them and they begin to think, I am above this. I can do whatever I want. I can lead in any way I want. And people are here to serve me. They treat people like slaves in order to accomplish God's ministry, as they would call it. Although there's not much of God's ministry happening when a leader is is acting in that way. Rather than leading like that with authoritarian, domineering dictatorship, God's shepherds are to do something different. Look again at verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And that's the difference here. Remember what we read in Mark 10? At the end of that passage, what does Jesus say? For the Son of Man did this very thing. He came and gave his life as a ransom. He is setting the example for what this looks like. And that should be how elders function within the church. God's shepherds do not walk behind God's people and smack them on the heels with a staff and say, hurry up, get it done. You need to move forward. Instead, what God's shepherds do is they walk in front of the flock and they live in a way that is worthy of emulation. They're not perfect. They don't have everything all together. But people see their life and see the direction they're going and the passion with which they're heading in that direction and they say, I want to follow that. I want to be like that. That is what mature Christianity looks like. I mean, this word example here is a beautiful word. It's used in a whole bunch of different ways in the New Testament. It's used to talk about a statue or an idol that is made and there's a whole bunch of little replicas of this statue. They all look the same. It's it's an example of this, of this particular pattern. This can be used to talk about an imprint or a mark in something that then can be reproduced. You pour plaster into that imprint and then you get the same mold. And that's what elders do. They model, they, they show a mold that can be copied in their lifestyle. And so to summarize verses two and three, I would say overall, you get a picture of a man who graciously, eagerly, voluntarily sets an example for the flock of God and provides servant leadership for the good of others. To see other people pursue the Lord to a greater degree, make their next steps in the faith, grow to maturity in Christ. And that's what Ephesians 4 was describing that Danny read this morning. And when that is done well, not perfectly, but when that is done well, There's great compensation for that. This is the last part. So shepherd God's flock using God's methods in light of God's return. Now, as I'm describing this this morning, shepherding God's flock, so you're, you're taking responsibility for the almighty God of the universe's people whom he died for, 
and you are to function according to his methods, scripturally, have his, the character that he demands of his shepherds. And when you, when you put those two together, you can sort of be easy to think, that's a heavy commitment to make. Do I really want to do this? Is this really worth it? I mean, it's a weighty thing to say to people, follow me as I follow Christ. I mean, that's what Paul did, and that's his method of discipleship. It's to say, watch how my life demonstrates this, and then do the same thing. That's part of this. So it's easy after these first couple of verses to go, who would sign up for this? And the answer is in verse 4. Here's the motivation, here's the reason for why men desire this office. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I love how Peter here calls Jesus the chief shepherd. Takes us back to John 21. Jesus commissions Peter, shepherd my flock, tend my lambs. Peter commissions us, those that serve as elders in the church here, as a fellow elder. And we are all functioning as under shepherds. We're taking responsibility for the chief shepherd's flock. And he is away right now and has commissioned us and charged us with this task and he will return. Now, I suppose when you think about his return, there could be an element of fear in in that expectation of him returning. And I think if you were functioning as an elder in an authoritarian way, like some of those guys I mentioned earlier, when the chief shepherd appears and you have used and abused his flock, it's not going to go well for you. That is a fearful thing to anticipate in how you're functioning. I mean, just read the way that God talks to the shepherds of Israel in Ezekiel 34. And he describes them as making themselves fat off of his flock. He's a God of vengeance, and he does not take well to that sort of leadership. But thankfully, that's not the focus that Peter has here on judgment when the chief shepherd returns. There's a whole other side to his return that is a beautiful thing. Look again. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Not perfection, making strides, being faithful, fulfilling the character qualifications and the task of shepherding and providing oversight. And when that happens with consistency and faithfully in God's church, then the chief shepherd will return And he will say, well done. Thank you for shepherding my flock in the meantime. And what could be better than that? And I don't think this is a literal crown here. What I think he's describing is a crown that is honor and glory. It's Christ's approval and his satisfaction with the way that you have shepherded his flock. Now, keep in mind in this whole passage here that Peter is talking to elders who are really in the thick of it. And this is tough. There's no doubt that in their church, there are sin issues happening. There are in every church all the time. People are sinning. They're having to shepherd people and teach people and instruct people because of personal sin. But the problems aren't only internal. The problems are external as well. People are suffering They're being persecuted for their faith. It's a fledgling church in each of these cities. 
And Peter's words here to this flock and to these elders are to shepherd and provide oversight because the Lord will honor you and will approve of what you have done. And the exhortation here is to to the elders to keep at it in light of his return. He's coming back, so stay at it. Don't give up. The reward will be worth it. And the exhortation to the the application, I think, for you as the church body is Hebrews 13, 17, to let the elders shepherd and to lead well and follow them as they follow Christ and let them do their work with joy. And it's interesting in Hebrews, he says, let them do it with joy because it's for your benefit. Everything goes smoother and works better and people grow and the Great Commission goes forth when God's church is ordered the way he has it to be ordered. When his elders function in leadership as God would have them, as servants who are setting an example for the flock, and then when the church body graciously and kindly follows and allows them to do the work of teaching and shepherding with joy. And that's what he's calling us to this morning. And I'm very thankful, as I say all of that, that here at WBC, that both of those things happen on a regular basis. The church body here is a joy to lead and to shepherd, and the elders are a joy to work with. And so we're thankful this morning to be adding one to our number as elders, adding another shepherd. And I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll continue into the last part of our service. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for our time in your word. Help help these truths to be clear. Help us to live our lives as the church as you have intended and as other churches have done for 2,000 years. And may your work continue both downriver in us and through us and around the world as disciples are made, they're baptized, and they're taught to obey everything that you've commanded, and then more disciples are made. We thank you for involving us in your work in this way, and we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, at this point in the service, I am going to have Zach come up here and the other elders come up here as well. On my left, you guys can kind of gather on this side of the platform here. Um, And we're going to, uh, don't be shy. (laughs) We're going to lay hands on Zach and uh, each of us are going to pray over him. And what we've done is uh, we've divided up um, as elders Uh, different areas of focus for each of us. And so each of us is going to be taking a different area um, and praying over Zach uh, regarding that that particular um, area of focus, like family, doctrinal integrity, personal walk with the Lord, um, and then uh, the church as a whole. Um, Why are we laying hands on Zach and praying over him uh, like this? Well, this is not, again, just something that we came up with. We're attempting to follow the biblical pattern for this. In the New Testament, you see in the book of Acts, as well as in both First and Second Timothy, um, you see that this ceremony of laying hands on someone and praying over them is a way to officially commission them for a task, for a specific role, particularly an elder. Uh, Paul talks about this a couple of times in First Timothy and in Second Timothy. It's interesting because Paul warns the other elders not to do this too hastily. 
not to lay hands on someone too quickly and commission them as an elder. Because if you do that, you may be partaking in their sins if you're unaware of those things. And so this is a a significant moment, and it's a joining together of our leadership as the current elders with Zach and commissioning him for this task. Um, It's interesting as well in Timothy that Paul also encourages Timothy to remember when the elders laid hands on him to commission him. Um, He tells him this when things are difficult, when it's a struggle, when he's timid or when he's fearful in his shepherding task. Paul says, remember when the elders laid hands on you and the gift that was given to you, spiritually speaking, to function in this role. And so let that be an emboldening thing for you, an encouraging thing for you, and and may that help you to continue to serve in in your role uh, as a shepherd and as an elder. And so we're going we're gonna to pray over Zach now. Uh, Dick is going to start this out, and then I'm going to finish this up in prayer. Um, and then I'll say a couple more things after that, and, uh, and we'll be dismissed. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have raised up Zach to be an elder at the Woodhaven Bible Church and have given him the opportunity to obtain an extensive knowledge and understanding of the Bible. We ask that your Holy Spirit will help Zach to remain faithful to your teaching and instructions and that you will give Zach a clear understanding of how to apply your word, not only to his life, but also give him the ability to convey the truth of your scripture to others. We ask that Zach will always have the desire to please you as he lives his life as a believer, a husband, a father, and a business owner. We ask that you will give Zach the wisdom and strength to identify and overcome the obstacles and temptations which the devil will bring into his life. We ask that you will help Zach to live a life which is pleasing to you and a witness to the world. We ask that our church body will uphold Zach in prayer and encourage him as he serves you. We ask these things in Christ's name. gracious Father, we are so thankful and blessed today to lift Zach talk to you, Father, that he has desired a good work and being an elder here at WBC. Father, we just ask and pray that he would be ever faithful to the reading of the word and prayer and fellowship with the saints, Father, and being a great example to all that are here. Father, we pray that he will seek wisdom from you and all that he does and daily walk. Father, we also pray, Father, for uh, any clarity of the gospel that he has, Father, when you provide divine appointments for him. Father, let him always be depending on you in his walk, Father, that he would do, uh, be faithful to you, faithful to your word, Father, to teach you in all the things that he does, giving glory to you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, we thank you for how you care and provide for the local church. And we thank you for Zach and all the ways he has served and blessed others at Woodhaven over many years. We are grateful that he'll be joining the elder board to help lead, teach, and serve the body of believers here at Woodhaven Bible Church. At this time, I would specifically like to pray for Zach and his family. I pray that you would provide wisdom and guidance to Zach and that he would lead his family well and in a manner that is pleasing to you. We thank you for Kristen's love for you, Lord, and for sacrificially giving her time and talents to serve the body of believers here at Woodhaven as well. 
whether as a mom, a wife, a volunteer, an employee, or as a, fee, a friend, we pray that you would always guide and direct her paths, provide her strength and encouragement as she encounters challenges. We pray for Zach and Kristen's marriage, that they will continue to love, support, encourage, and serve one another unselfishly. When conflicts arise, help them to resolve differences in a gentle manner, always speaking the truth in love. Help them to build one another up. When there's joys, when there are joy, and when there's joys and blessings, give them thankful and humble hearts. When there's discouragement, problems, anxiousness, give them comfort and peace in your love and faithfulness to us. Help them to grow closer to one another as well as grow closer to you, Lord. Be with Zach and Kristen as they raise their children. We pray that Josie and Lacey would each develop their own personal faith in you. Help them to embrace the teachings of your word. Give them a love for you. We pray that they would know Jesus. We pray that they would find their identity in Jesus and bring them joy. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for the work that you're doing in our church. Um, it is clearly not man-made, Lord. Um, we are dependent on you, Holy Spirit, um, to sanctify, uh, to give us understanding, and to build your church. And we're so thankful for the work that you're doing in raising up leaders and shepherds for your church. We do pray for Zach that you would fill him with wisdom and with spiritual understanding. We ask that he would continue to grow in his knowledge of the scriptures. Lord, we pray that he would grow in his love for you, that it would be deepened and strengthened, that he would be more confident than ever in your care for him and your love for him. And then I pray that that would overflow in his life in a profound way into love for others, that he would give attention to others and concern and care for others, and that he would shepherd well and in a way that, that honors and reflects you and is an example of what the Lord has done for us. We pray specifically now for our church body as we respond to the message this morning and respond to the addition of an elder here. I pray that we would follow Zach's leadership, that he would demonstrate humility in a servant's heart, and that we would see his example, and that we would say, that is a life that I want to emulate, and I want to be like in many ways. And so I pray that, that we would allow him to do the work of an elder with joy, and that that would serve as a great advantage for us. And we pray for our church body as a whole. We pray for unity we pray that we would have the same goals, the same mission, the same hunger, the same desires. We pray that you would give us peace within the body, that we would be so focused on making disciples, on encouragement, on speaking the truth in love, that any potential division would be undermined by our commitment to you, Lord. It's a real threat that Satan has for churches that are pursuing your mission, Lord is to undermine them by division. And so we pray that you would give us a great unity. We pray that you would give us passion and joy, help Zach to lead in this along with the other elders. Joy for, for you and for your mission and your task. Lord, we pray that this year and over the next few years that we would be committed to our mission as a body. 
that we would reach out in our community. There's so many folks who don't know you, who've never had a relationship with you, who don't know the good news of the gospel. And we're here, Lord. You have, by your sovereign hand, ordained that Woodhaven Bible Church would exist in this location with this body of believers at this moment in history, and you have a mission and a task for us to accomplish. And as we've added a leader today, a shepherd, we pray that you would help us as a church to recommit ourselves to this great commission that we have received that has been unfolding for 2,000 years. We thank you that we can play a role and a part in this by your grace, and I pray that we would be faithful to do that. We pray that disciples within our church would be strengthened, that we would grow to maturity, that we would be able to see the error of false teaching, and we would cling to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be gospel people in the words we convey and then in the lifestyle and the attitudes that we, that we have. We pray for those who have never heard the gospel, that they would hear it and that they would respond, and they too would become followers of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for our time together this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to add a shepherd to your flock here at WBC. Be with us now as we depart. May we be strengthened by your grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. Well, thank you all for being with us this morning after the service. Um, we typically would have a luncheon and a time where we uh, uh, fellowship together with Zach and with his family, um, but obviously because of COVID, we are not going to do that this morning, but that doesn't mean that you can't encourage him and uh, just express your appreciation and thankfulness to the Lord for, for his work in Zach's life uh, and by, by saying a, a few encouraging and kind words to him after the service. Um, so... It's been good to be together this morning. I'm glad that we've been able to worship the Lord together. I'm going to finish this up by closing uh, in prayer from Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll let you go, all right? Let's pray. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. You're just